You're listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España from Barcelona to Madrid. Today we are in Tarragona. You are indeed listening to El Clásico. My name is Daniel Freiber. I am the host of this episode and I am in Tarragona. As you heard our friend Rob Hatch just say, and today we is the operative personal subject pronoun because ace commentator Rob Hatch is joining me from just across the Mediterranean from here in Mallorca. Rob, when I've... I think, no, he's not. He's in Asturias. No. He's in Asturias. I thought you were at home in Soya because I was going to say, Rob, when I've been in Soya, Port de Soya um, specifically... On the very rare occasions when I've been able to see the Spanish mainland, it has been the lights of Tarragona that have glittered on the horizon. So I was going to say, you could have watched today's stage from your bedroom window um, with a telescope, with a very powerful telescope. But alas, you, not the case. No, I could have been blown over to today's stage, I think, actually. If we'd have had the winds we'd have had on Sunday, we had the, the back end of the storm that ruined the weekend at the Vuelta for the organisers, but yes, I'm on the mainland, I'm in Asturias, I'm in a very rainy Asturias, so I hope it stops raining by the time we get to the Angliru. Uh, I'm in a very sunny um, Plaza del Forum in Tarragona. Tarragona is a Catalan city that's a little bit rough around the edges, but the centre is very beautiful, and that's where I am um, at the moment. And also joining us today, after a 24-hour Andorra-enforced hiatus, it's Lionel Burney. <laughs> Lionel, how are you? Good evening, chaps. How are you? We're going to have the Andorra debate, um, chaps, as with every passing edition, it grows on me. I've got a corrections corner. Well, I, th I think I said a couple of days ago, you, you mentioned about Sepp Kuss being a resident of Andorra, and I said, was that a, a move for tax reasons? And of course, I should have known this, I should have remembered this, because Ian Boswell was telling me all about this. Uh, American citizens pay their taxes in the US. Uh, regardless of where they live. So they don't get any benefit from living in a tax haven or anywhere with a, a tax advantage such as Andorra or Monaco, apparently. So to use the phraseology um, rather gorshly employed by Fran Reyes yesterday, there are no American tax cheaters in this Vuelta a España. <laughs> um, Rob, uh, Tar Tarragona, it always, I'd always meant to look up whether the name... Tarragona uh, had any relationship with the herb tarragon. I assume that it did, and it doesn't. The name dates back to uh, the, I think, the third century AD when the city was founded. It means it basically means rough piece of land. A rough piece of land. I know there were, we saw in the coverage there was a very big sort of petrol works or electric works or something industrial on the edge of town. I know in more recent times it's been famous for hosting the Mediterranean Games in sport. Yes. And they've got a famous football team as well, Nastic, who in are Nastic. down in the depths at the minute. So the, the herb, Tarragon, um, did you know this? That um, it's a corruption of the French word estragon or little dragon derived from the Arabic tarkun. Various folklore beliefs were that tarragon was good for treating the bites of venomous snakes, while others thought the name was due to the coiled serpent-like roots of the plant itself. Fascinating. Third, final, final piece of trivia about uh, tarragona. Another thing that it's known for, and this baffled me, you chaps are familiar with the, the liqueur, the chartreuse, which is, is made in the chartreuse massif in France. And well, apparently the monks in the monastery on the chartreuse um, that, that invented that liqueur were banished to Catalonia and 
Tarragona in particular, and there was a long period between 1903 and 1989 the liqueur was made here, and so much so, Rob, that it's now a, a sort of, well, it's entered the kind of people's um, moors and people's tastes here in Tarragona. It's a key part of the Feast of Santa Tecla, which is celebrated in Tarragona every year. Um, on that note, I think we should probably get back to the cycling. Uh, Lionel Burney, can we have the tale of the Tarragona etapa, please? El resumen de la etapa. The tale of the etapa. Lionel, off you go. Well, fortunately, people don't listen to the cycling podcast for either tax advice or uh, details. People don't listen to the cycling podcast for <laughs> stop, stop anymore. Descriptions of Tarragon. <laughs> well, I've been looking at the numbers, Daniel, and I think you think you're wrong there. You think you're wrong. We're holding up, holding okay. up. Don't worry about okay. that. Stage four of the welter, and after. Th- Three days of mayhem, mishaps, stages that have been held in the dark, somersaulting stage winners colliding with the police. At last, there was a routine beige day. Just a nice brown day on the Vuelta a España. And it's given the hot take machine a chance to cool down a bit. Nobody did anything particularly wrong. Um, The race organisers aren't complete idiots for fouling everything up. So I think probably now the Vuelta has left Andorra behind. The real race can begin. It was 184 kilometres to Tarragona, back in Catalonia, as you say, Daniel. Two third category climbs in the final third of the stage and a real kind of soft day-long break of three riders. Eduardo Sepulveda of Lotto Destiny. Who was wearing the King of the Mountains jersey on loan from Remco Evnepoel? He was joined by Ander Okamika of BH Burgos and David Gonzalez of Carral. A real break of wild card riders, and they never got much more than two minutes twenty advantage over the peloton, which was driven most of the day by DSM chasing for Alberto Dainese and Alpacinda Koenig chasing for Caden Groves. Uh, probably the two A-list sprinters. Uh, Sepulveda took both of the third category climbs, means he takes the King of the Mountains jersey outright. They were caught uh, with around 25 kilometres to go shortly after the final climb and the intermediate sprint. Then there was a crash with four kilometres to go. The key casualties in that were Santiago Buitrago of Bahrain and Brian Cockart of Cofidis. The run-in was really technical into the town centre, city centre, lots of roundabouts, wide roads to uh, narrow roads, back to wide roads again. And the final corner, the left-hander, really caught out EF Education, easy post rider, Marijn Vandenberg. He went down. And then we had this strange sort of two-tier sprint. Juan Sebastian Milano, who won the final stage of last year's Welter in Madrid, he looked really good for a while. But in his uh, wheel tracks, Caden Groves of Alpacin de Koenig, Looked like he'd given up the ghost a bit, sat down and then kicked again when he realised there was still a fair way to go to the line and Milano was fading. So Caden Groves got the stage win for Alpacin de Koenig. He won a stage at the Vuelta last year and won at the Giro earlier this season. Milano in second, Edward Turns of Lidl Trek in third and Milan Menton of Lotto Destiny in fourth. The, the other thing to note was that the crash with 4K to go, um, well, that cost some riders some time, notably Buitrago, who slipped down from 8th to 33rd overall after min- losing 2 minutes 22. But possibly because of the uh, Marijn Vandenberg crash opening up some splits, there were some other time losses as well. Hugh Carthy lost 24 seconds, Eddie Dunbar a minute and 33 Leonard Kemner, 141. Egan Bernal, 235. Emmanuel Buchmann, 302. And Wilco Kelderman, 339. I mean, not all of those were going to go for the overall. 
but some of them certainly won't be now. Overall, no change. Remco Evenepoel still in the red jersey by five seconds from Enric Mas. Uh, Lenny Martinez in third on 11 seconds. And, well, it uh, could be a similar-ish day tomorrow, couldn't it, chaps? think so. We think so. Um, Lionel, you mentioned there the King of the Mountains jersey, very fetching King of the Mountains jersey with big blues, blue, bluish-purple spots um, here at the Vuelta Espana. We keep promising this feature on jerseys at the Vuelta, Vueltas of Yore. We, it feels like we've been promising this in the same way the city of Barcelona has been promising that the Sagrada Familia will one day be finished. We will do this feature, but it made me think. Um, I, I had forgotten about this announcement that was made before the Vuelta that was, there was going to be a solidarity jersey. It was basically the Vuelta taking on a sort of idea that we've run with for a few years, the Pedaleur de Chambre. It's for the rider who shows some exhibits, some kind of um, comradeship or a fantastic piece of teamwork on a stage or or something else that's judged worthy of uh, the solidarity jersey. Yesterday, Egan Bernal got it. You're not allowed to wear it in the race, but Bernal got it, it seemed to me, just for doing his job. He, He got it for staying with Geraint Thomas when Geraint Thomas got dropped. I was watching the Spanish TV today and they were amazed. I mean, they don't partic- they're not particular fans of Geraint Thomas and his chances on Spanish television. For some reason, they seem to have ignored his record. But they were, they were talking up, oh, it's, it's amazing that Egan Bernal's, you know, riding for somebody else. I mean, I, I don't know. I, didn't he come into the, the Vuelta to ride for other people? Is that not, like you say, his job? Yeah, an odd one. Lionel, you mentioned there, well, Caden Grow's fantastic stage winner, thumbing his nose at those who who sort of wondered about his move from what's now Jaco Alula last year. People sort of thought that, well, he was going to Alpacin to notionally get more opportunities. And they said, well, they've got a lot of sprinters on that team, got a lot of fast riders, and he wasn't going to get those opportunities. Well, he has, he has had them this year, and he's won two... Grand Tour stages. Um, it was a pretty, a, a relatively straightforward sprint stage, apart from that crash um, in all those couple of crashes in the finale. It looked like a relatively tranquil day in the peloton, although it was fast, um, which has something to do as well with the fact that it was largely downhill um, for most of the, well, certainly the first part of the stage. But chaps and we look upon these stages and sometimes we sort of paint in very broad brushstrokes dismiss them as easy days however i put it to you that there are no easy days on grand tours and we're gonna well we're gonna hear um a couple of uh, some testimonies to that effect right now we're gonna hear from someone who's very much in the thick of the action in the bunch sprint lewis askey young sprinter sort of sprinter puncher one of uh, a gaggle of very young riders making their grand tour debuts for groupama FDJ, he um, ended up finishing ninth, or it was eighth. He was eighth in the bunch sprint. And we're also going to hear from Attila Valter, the Hungarian national road champion, who is here at the Vuelta Espana on he's on sort of guard dog duty for Primoz Roglic and Jonas Vingegaard. And even on a day like today, Attila Valter is, well, he's, he's more a climber than anything else. But as we're going to hear... He had a very important job to do as well. So, um, as I said, no easy days on the Vuelta a España. I did quite a bit of research to see that final corner, and it really looked tight. And I knew, I knew there was going to be people sliding out, but I needed to. I wanted to get onto Gross's wheel, and I managed to do that. But it meant that I was on the outside. And uh, yeah, Moran came. A couple of guys came flying at the inside, slid out, and it just. I I knew it was about to happen, so I kind of lost a little bit of speed. But in the end. Three, four guys just came at the inside, 
slammed on so it just it really I lost all my speed so I'm a little bit gutted because that was a super nice finish for me and the guys did a really a really good job to put faith for me today and uh, yeah it's it's frustrating but that's sprinting at the end of the day so I mean I suppose the good news is there might be an opportunity tomorrow I don't know if you've earmarked that one as well um, yeah but I think I'm going to give Sam the opportunity tomorrow um, just because I mean we're both not really sprinters but we're guys that can kind of like a finish like that it's more about tactics and I'm like I've got a really good 30 second punch so that's why we gave it me today and then we'll try we're never going to win a sprint from the front with the guys we've got here but for sure if we get it right we can you know a second or third is not without reach and if you get in there then uh, everything all the stars align you've got the win so yeah I think we'll share it between us a few of the sprint opportunities um, and then, yeah obviously we've got Lenny and Roman who are also two really good cards to play so and just finally Lewis um, your first few days at the Worlds I mean there's so many really really young guys here some of you are, I guess, are trying to kind of play it down and trying not to get too sort of excited. Um, for some, it's obviously for some of you, it's a huge thing to be here at the first Grand Tour. Um, how's it been for you? Yeah, honestly, um, I get more nervous at my local races now than I do it. Why? Because, you know, I think if you, you get too carried away, like especially me, it doesn't, it doesn't, like it takes a lot for me. Like I can be in the sprint like that and still be quite calm even though everything's going around so here yeah, I think I think it's because we've got absolutely nothing to lose and everything to gain and with that mentality I don't think you can be like too it's not a scary thing it's like at the end of the day it's the same guys we've been racing all year and we've already shown that uh, we can compete against them we can win against them so yeah it's like they all say uh, it's just a bike race at the end of the day and I've seen some semi-facetious but quite funny memes as well about Rudy Mollard telling you guys bedtime stories. You're all, <laughs> you're all about 19, he's about 33. Yeah, yeah. No, it's nice to have someone there with experience, you know, sometimes just to calm it down when there's... You know, like, even like today, you've got such a long running on big, wide-open roads. It's so easy to get carried away and think, oh, I'm at the front, I'm at the front, I'm, like, I'm doing a good job, I'm doing a good job. And then it, it only matters when you get to the last 100 metres who's at the front. So, uh, yeah, stuff like that is really nice. And, yeah, how, we, none of us know how to react over... We're going to react over three weeks. So, um, yeah, it's nice to have someone like Rudy in the team. I don't know. I heard you that... I mean, I don't, don't understand too much Hungarian, yeah, but... Just trust <laughs> I heard Ganna, I heard Primoz. Um, yeah. Just tell us, well, the story of your day and the story of the team's day, what seemed like a pretty tranquil day, relatively, for you guys. Yeah, yeah I just said uh, there in the Hungarian media that uh, my work was to to be with Robert Hessing, the, the first guys who, who keep the guys in the front. Robert did a really long and, and super good job keeping us there. And uh, then when we really started to get going, uh, I, I tried to take over a bit. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, compared to last year's, I improved a lot. Yeah, then, then the really drug racing started. Then uh, I was just next to Castro Viejo, uh, Filippo Gana and, and the guys from Bahrain. So yeah, I, I improve a lot, but it's, it's really a hard job. You have to go like really often. I just look down to the Garmin and it's over 600 watts. So you cannot really hold that for a long time. You really try to look for shelter and everything. But uh, you also want to keep your uh, your leaders out of the wind. So then I have to go in the wind. So yeah, I just did, did what I could. And I just said that uh, around uh, 5K to go, I, I couldn't hold it anymore. It was really a big, big uh, drug racing. Then Dylan took over. And I was just in the back of the bunch and I just really, without breaking, could pass the, the, the big crash because I was not in the bunch anymore. So I just went with the speed and then I just came back in the end. So 
this is how I finished the close with, with Primoz. Then I said, yeah, we we will lose one moment, Dylan, and then we'll be just Sepp, uh, Jonas and, uh, and Primoz there. So maybe a bike or, or something could be nice to, to if I'm anyway there. So, yeah, it was starting really easy, but ended up super, super hard the day for me. Sounds stressful. Last thing, Attila, um, we know that Primoz was hurting a little bit yesterday. Did you hear anything to that effect today or did he talk about how he was feeling today? Yeah, he said he is much better now. He said he yesterday he still, still felt a bit, a bit and just focused on trying to survive the day. I think fourth place managed it quite well. But today he said he enjoyed and also was, yeah, the last hour was hectic, but uh, the first three hours was quite easy. So he enjoyed that he can have a, like a recovery day, let's say. The last hour was really, really hard, but yeah, more in the wind than in the back. It was just hectic, but he's good in this, so he has a good day, I think. And us as a team, we had a good day. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. So, chaps, as we heard before the break, uh, bedtime stories from Rudy Mollard for the Groupama FDJ riders. And, well, frustrating day for Lewis Aski. And also, well, a stressful day for Attila Valter. 600 watts for well, the last 5, 10 kilometres. Rob Hatch, you capable of such a, of doing such a job? I couldn't even do it down the shops for about 10 seconds, never mind. <laughs> um, it did look a stressful day, actually. There, there was a lot of wind about, and yes, it was mainly downhill, wasn't it? But then there's a lot of tailwind, but we had the slight crosswind section. As we've seen the last few days, a lot of roundabouts, so lots of jobs for little jobs, as you heard, those little spikes in the power numbers from uh, Volta, of course, emphasis, maybe an in inverted commas on the little there. Um, <laughs> A lot of job and you know even things like I was hearing stories of Vingegaard stopping for the for a call of nature I won't dwell on this Daniel because I know you don't like this but mm-hmm. um, the, the 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 motorbike reporter on the on the television was saying no no he stopped and unfortunately he was explaining that he'd stopped for something that took a little longer than just the two seconds Vingegaard but even then he had two teammates waiting to bring him back to the peloton all sorts of things going on all day that we, we can quite easily forget and like you say we paint it with a big broad brush saying Nothing's happened today. Calm day. No, there's plenty going on always, isn't there? And I suppose, chaps, a guy like Attila Valter, I mean, obviously, Jumbo Visma have got double the options, double the possibilities of winning this Vuelta Espana with Jonas Vingegaard, Primoz Roglic. Some would say they've got triple leaders here with Sepkus as well. But that also means the attention and the energy of guys like Attila Valter may be divided at certain moments. And their job becomes almost doubly difficult. Have we worked out whether they've got sort of two teams yet? One for Roglic, one for Vingegaard? Because they were speculating well, in the Spanish media that there were two teams. And they were also speculating as a consequence when they kept seeing Vingegaard at the front that Roglic was still feeling the effects of that crash a couple of days ago as well. Well, we heard Attila say there that, well, certainly Primoz Roglic felt better today. He said he was feeling better. And um, yeah, I think they'll be... they'll have been very glad to get through today. Remco Avenepoel will have been glad as well to get through today without any, or at least none that he admitted to us, the media, in his post-race press conference, any after effects of his nasty crash at the finish. Chaps, there was so much speculation last night about who Remco had hit after the finish line, why um, this collision had been occurred, of course, who was to blame. And this was the first relatively uneventful day that Remco Evenepoel has had on the Vuelta Espana and he was well relieved shall we say in his post-race press conference. Yeah and I think it echoes what you're saying about it being stressful especially that running when everyone hears there's been a crash because it was quite near the front of the peloton wasn't it as well it was sort of 30-40 riders as they all came squeezed together and 
everyone's got that sort of mental finish line of three kilometers to go but it's a kind of a false security blanket that always isn't it because even if they get to that three kilometers to go mark the the rule only kicks in if there's then a crash so it's 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 kind of not really a security blanket of any kind is it um and then when they come to into the into the finale and uh somebody's going for the sprint marine vandenberg and i think it was one of the alpers into koenig riders uh, robbie geese who was up there for Caden Groves, they both slipped out on that right-hand corner, which, again, looked like a sort of pinch point with the barriers kind of going out and then back in again. Uh, Remco Evenepoel was 12th over the line, so he would have been up there kind of having, you know, a a real front row uh, look at that crash. Yeah, nothing is safe and secure until the riders are over the line. And in the case of yesterday's stage, uh, and I'm not making light of it, even after the line, you know, anything can happen. And it's funny, we always talk about the security blanket, and I'm as guilty on commentary as, as anybody, perhaps more so of this, because I'm always trying to remind people what the situation is in the GC, but you can go down in the last three Ks, and you still don't want to crash, do you? <laughs> you still don't want to be awake for three nights with burns on the side of your body and getting dressings done and just struggling on with pain. It's not something that you want to do, full stop. Yeah, if you lose the wheel just because it's split up as well, there's no security blanket. It's only in the event of there being a, being a crash. So it's kind of like this this notion that, oh, 3K to go and everyone's safe and it should all be plain sailing to the line. It, I mean, it's, it's just a, a, a kind of false reality. But uh, yeah, that, and that's why Evanapool is up there today. You know, not far behind him are all of the other GC riders kind of stacked up, all making sure that they're not caught behind... Uh, the, the split, which in the end was costly because the next group's 24 seconds down and that's a, a, a big chunk of time to just kind of give away on a routine day like today. Yeah, it was, it was quite a gnarly finish. Um, we heard Lewis Askey talk about the homework that he'd done. I would suggest that anyone who was in contention today had done a lot of homework because technically, well, it was important to be on the money, wasn't it? Um, a lot of bends. And I think Caden Groves is probably the fastest rider in this Vuelta España. But his victory was also the fruit of, well, excellent piloting work by his Alpacin de Koenig team. And they're very practised in this, aren't they? Of all of the teams here, um, they are the team with... Uh, the, the most experienced, I think, of leading out a sprinter, and they certainly look the most practiced unit today. And um, talking about forensic analysis, chaps, there was a lot of forensic analysis as well after yesterday's stage about some micro movements on the climb up to Arinsal yesterday, and particularly this moment when Juan Ayuso went away, Jonas Vingegaard went with him, and it, it looked, it seemed almost as though Primoz Roglic and Sepkus had dragged. Remco Evenepoel back up to Vingegaard's wheel, back up to Ayuso's wheel. And, well, this was sort of held up by some people as evidence of miscommunication in the Jumbo-Visma camp or bad judgment, bad tactics. Um, I thought it would be interesting just to get a bit of a debrief from Jumbo-Visma on yesterday's stage and particularly that moment. Um, so that's what I did this morning with one of their direct sportifs on the Vuelta España, Mark Reef. Here is Mark Reef. We were quite happy. You always want to win. And of course, Remco took four seconds again. But in general, we are happy with, uh, with the way how we rode uh, yesterday and also the shape is of, uh, of the boys. So we also said uh, to each other and also just now when we arrived here in the meeting with, uh, with the riders, 
that if we look to the last years, yeah, it was always difficult for, for us to do a good first mountain stage. We had our leader there, but there was always a huge gap to the to the support riders. And actually, we were there now with uh, with four guys and even six guys or seven guys to the bottom of the last climb. And that is something different than uh, than the last years. It's also based on that. We are happy where we are. It was maybe feeling-wise for for both not the the perfect day, but yeah, if you then still finish second and fourth, it can only get better, and that is something uh, yeah, where we believe in. And uh, and with such a strong team around, there's a lot possible in the in the upcoming weeks. I think I saw some quotes from Primoz, maybe in Slovenian, suggesting that he was hurting a little bit yesterday from the crash. Is that right? And is he still? hurting today do you know it's okay but i think that all riders know that the first day after a crash is not uh, not the nicest one and uh and he hit the deck uh, the, the day before on a on a roundabout it was not a nice uh, a nice crash but in the end it's also not something to uh, to worry about i mean when you had to worry about something then you could also see that yesterday already that uh, that he was not able to follow and he was all the time with uh, with the best riders there so like what i said already it can only get better how much is it a problem for you guys that Remco has discovered or we've all discovered that Remco can sprint really fast uphill as well? You know, we know that Primoz has taken a lot of bonus seconds in the past. Does it change a lot for you in terms of tactics? Uh, we also saw that already uh, during Catalonia and also last year he did some good sprints already. And of course, yeah, he, he also noticed that himself. Then you also start to focus more on it. And, and of course, he's an, uh, a competitor of an opponent of us that, that has a good sprint. So yeah, like we also know that Primoz can, uh, can sprint well. And it will be just a fight every now and then for the, for the seconds in the, in the upcoming stage. Because we have a lot of, uh, of uphill finishes like, uh, like yesterday, where it is possible that you come with, uh, with the group still to the finish. But it also will be that during the three weeks, the gaps will uh, will grow more and more, and then you um, yeah, then you have more the situation that uh, that it will be rider to rider, and uh, and you don't have those situations uh, very often. But I think that for sure in the first week we get some uh, situations like this. We know that Remco is fast, and we uh, we already took that into account, and for sure we'll uh, we'll bring that with us in uh, in making our plans for the for the upcoming days. But maybe in the past you would have ridden for that aim you you would have wanted a you know a sprint at the top of a mountaintop finish and maybe you might want a different scenario now yeah it's possible it's possible that we uh, that we want a different scenario and then it's more up to quick step then at that moment but it's also possible that we uh, we keep everything open uh, like we always do and we make a decision uh, then final decision in the in the meeting before but also can still uh, stage uh, change that uh, during the during the race and last thing, Mark, yesterday there was a moment where um, Jonas was off the front with Ayuso and then Primoz sort of, well, Primoz and Sepp kind of made a move after him. There's a lot of sort of micro-analysis of these moments. They're split-second moments and people, you know, on YouTube and videos and people can say, well, what are they doing? What, what? But from the point of view of Director Sportive and from the team, tell us, what's the reality in those moments? I mean, are decisions being made coolly lucidly in the way that fans think they're being made or no it's a it's a decision what they make them themselves on the on the bike in the heat of the moment and uh, i think in the next time they will think differently uh, they will act differently but like yesterday ayuso speeded up yeah, it was just an uh, he speeded up jonas was in the wheel seb was in his wheel primos was in his wheel they all kept the wheel more or less so that was I think at that moment the main focus of uh, of them, but like what I say, it's in the in the future they 
I think they will uh, will do will act differently, and then you get a different situation. And that's also the same as, I mean, we we are now with uh, with quite some riders uh, uh, there. We we were with with four in the first eleven, I think. So also in the width, we uh, we are really strong, and for sure we uh, we're going to use that in the in the upcoming days. Interesting chaps. Um, I was ready for Mark Reeve to sort of dismiss any questions about, as I said, the micro movements in the race, which I don't really think affected the outcome. I think Remco Evenepoel was the fastest, strongest rider yesterday, and he was always bound to win. Um, whether one rider attacked with three kilometers ago and Primoz Roglic followed or didn't follow, I don't think it really altered the outcome. So I was ready for him to dismiss that, but he did sort of hint that there was a forthright exchange of opinions or there may have been in the Jumbo Visma camp last night maybe some sort of um, re-establishing of the parameters of who um, is as you said earlier Rob who's to work with who um, which moves which wheels they are to follow and when as we heard Mark Reef say they won't do that again intriguing a lot to think about. Um, I, there was another theory, wasn't there, going around yesterday about Sepkus and the fact that he was at home and all that sort of stuff as well. It was early in the race and maybe let's see if we can confuse everybody by having Sepkus up there as well. Um, they do have an embarrassment of riches and that's one of the reasons why they're in that position. They're all obviously starting climbing well, but it did look very, very strange. A lot of tactical things looked pretty strange yesterday. It was a bit like a hangover from the weekend where everyone was still a bit dazed and confused after everything had gone on. Rob, you are not working on the Vuelta Espana, but I know you've been keeping a very keen, close eye on it from your or through your periscope um, in Mallorca. What have you made so far of the well, the, the opening skirmishes, shall we say, in the Grand Tour battle um, between between the riders and organisers, or <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, um, because unfortunately that's probably been the biggest thing in the Spanish press, I have to say, on the news, on the television. You know, if we we even had what when oil dripped on the road yesterday and four people arrested. Um, uh, 400 millilitres of oil as you can imagine I was I was mainly interested in finding out whether this was extra virgin olive oil well yeah we um, don't want to throw it that's the thing I mean I'm, I'm visiting my partner at the minute and um, her parents last night were complaining about the price of olive oil going up I mean you're wasting the stuff the, the, the supermarkets today the shelves are half empty apparently it's been a really poor olive harvest because of the the climate change and you know the extreme weather so yeah I mean they're wasting the stuff it's, it's expensive stuff now Again, again, lapsing into the realm of speculation. Uh, uh, do we know yet, Rob, have you heard anything today about whether... I mean, there are two sort of fingers being pointed. One, the, the obvious one, I suppose, is a Catalan separatist, Cap Catalan nas nationalist. And the other one is maybe being pointed at um, environmentalist protesters. They could have been to blame. I'm, I'm not sure um, whether we have any more information about that at this stage. The, there's been a lot of talk amongst Catalan separatists this week about making a making a stand whether that and, and they've been sort of fighting within each other unfortunately for them as well it's been a, a rather strange situation you know should we get involved and and protest actively should we wave our esteladas and you'll have seen plenty of those actually today especially in the town of Valls Vice coming in the sort of very thin striped flags the yellow and red but if they have a blue star on one end rather like the Cuban flag design that is the the official separatist flag of of Catalonia the, the official flag that's used is that without the blue star on the end so you'll have seen a lot of that and that's one way that people can protest you often see it in football don't you in, in Barcelona and things like that but yes I think the main hypothesis is that 
four people were arrested by the national police, I think, as well as local Catalan police getting involved in other things at the weekend. But again, with these things, I'm always very, very careful on who to believe that there's a lot of political tension in Spain at the minute after another hung parliament in the national elections. So it's also always pretty difficult on which side to fall with that one. And you skillfully avoided giving us any kind of verdict on, well, who you think at this stage, at this very early yeah. stage, based on what we've seen so far, looks the man most likely to win this World Espana. The man most likely to win, I think, obviously looks like Evenepoel at the minute, but as we know, and as Remco knows from last year, it's, it's a long three weeks, isn't it? I think he's a much more mature rider this year, but I also think he's got a heck of a lot more competition. One man who I've been impressed with in the first few stages has been Juan Ayuso. He's about to come into his home region. I know he was born in Barcelona, wasn't he? And he speaks English better than any of us three do, given the fact that he was schooled in the USA. But he's about to go back into the region where he basically grew up as a cyclist in the Valencian community. And I'm pretty sure he'll want to make a, a bit of an impact. And I think from reading into the few things, you know, we were speculating about Jumbo Visma and who, who were they backing, who were they looking after, and how were they doing it. It's pretty clear to me that UAE are looking after Juan Ayuso as their main leader. Chaps, just to conclude on another piece of trivia, yesterday I mentioned the fact that I'd had well, what are known in Italian as cannelloni for dinner. And I'm wondering, I wondered, yes, and I wondered aloud uh, whether they were considered a typical dish of Catalonia, Catalonia, because I've had them a couple of times now. Um, one of our listeners, Augusto Magagna, got in touch with me today on Twitter and he said to solve your question about cannelloni in Catalonia, it's a very typical dish, especially for the local holiday of Santa Estef, 26th of December. Apparently it was brought to Catalonia by Italian chefs of the bourgeoisie in the 18th century. Fascinating stuff. Thank you, Augusto. There's a lot of great traditions and fiestas actually that have been evidenced going through Catalonia. The, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever heard about the the the, the human towers that are built in Catalonia as well. The Els Castells, Castellers of the people that do it. It's absolutely fascinating. I don't know if you have a look at that, but again, what, a couple of the times we went through and Another thing is these sort of long calçots that they that they sort of put on the barbecue. They're like sort of long onions um, that, that are eaten in the region as well. And obviously, very very proud region. You know, even if people even if people fall on the unification of you know sort of the unionist side of being Spanish or whether they are separatists and prefer to be. Catalan Republicans or not, they're, they're still very, very proud of their region. I think that's one of the nice things to come out the weekend, seeing all those towns and traditions, I'm sure. El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, in which we slow dance towards the irretrievable loss of any credibility the cycling podcast may ever have had by glorying in the pop music ear sores that have serenaded Vuelta Espana watchers over the years as official anthems of the Spanish Grand Tour. Yesterday's Ritmo de la Vuelta covered the 1987 race. Lucho Herrera claiming the first ever victory for a Latin American. And we also heard about the unfortunate impediment in the delicate area that put pay to Sean Kelly's challenge. Happily, the Irishman was back in 1988. Emphatically, successfully so. We'll hear about that in a minute. But first, it is incumbent upon me to tell you that in 1988, the Vuelta's official anthem was called Pedaleando, literally pedaling, and was performed by Serafin Zubiri. Vuelvo loco pensando, sin dinero otra vez, con tanto esfuerzo no alcanzo, ya no llego a fin de 
Blind from birth, Zubiri was educated in schools funded by Onfair, the Spanish charity for the visually impaired, and from 1990 the main sponsor of an iconic cycling team. It was in those schools that Zubiri discovered his musical talent. He was also a gifted sportsman who set numerous national athletics records in the Spanish championships organised by Onfair. And as a cyclist, he completed numerous notable Gran Fondos and the Camino de Santiago, not by foot, but by bike on nine occasions. A natural troubadour for the Vuelta then, which started that year in 1988 with an extremely wacky time trial road race hybrid running multiple heats in Tenerife and was ultimately decided by another time trial, this one on the penultimate day and won by Kelly to give him the Mayot Amarillo or yellow jersey. The following day in Madrid, the Irishman duly lifted the overall winner's trophy, a fetching silver cup for him to take home to Carrick on Sur in County Tipperary, or perhaps not as he told Lionel in 2018. Well, it, no, it was in the Cass factory. Then it was moved on because Cass was uh, sold by the Knorr family. Then it was in, 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 a, in a cafe bar in Victoria. Then it was moved to another one. And I have been on that, uh, I have been on, you know, on that chase for many years and through different people. And you know, then people come back and they say, yes, I think it's you know, in this cafe or in this pizza parlour. It's definitely in Victoria, and uh, uh, of recent I've got some information, and people have you know have said yes, uh, it's in this uh, uh, pizza restaurant. So uh, at the moment we're still following. Are you going to go over there and try and get it? Uh, no, not getting, well, not at the moment, unless I have a pretty pretty sure uh, information, solid information that it is there, uh, because I'm not going on. Uh, a wild chase. Lionel, I think we've got an update on that in uh, 2023. The now infamous pizzeria thought to be harbouring King Kelly's crown jewels. It closed down, hasn't it? Well, apparently so, yeah. The pizzeria in Vittoria is no longer there. But was a trophy ever there? Who knows? It would have gone on a magical mystery tour to the factory of Cass, uh, which was the soft drinks company that sponsored his team. I mean, yeah, the 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 two two of the biggest prizes from Kelly's career are missing because his only yellow jersey from the Tour de France in 1983 was in a, a sports bag on the back seat of a Citroen CX, I think it probably was, parked in uh, a, a Parisian back street as uh, Kelly went to negotiate the contracts for his lucrative post-tour criteriums with his agent or one of the agents I think who who managed all the criterium contracts and when he came out the car had been broken into and his only ever yellow jersey from the Tour de France was gone and similar story with the the Vuelta trophy no one least of all Sean actually knows where it is but one other bit of trivia from that 88 uh, Vuelta is that Kelly was in the top 10 on every single stage in that race Wow. Mm. Uh, we need a cycling equivalent of pickles. The pickles, the mixed <laughs> breed collie that found, that retrieved the, the World Cup trophy a few months before England won that mm, trophy in England. I did some research on pickles today. And um, he died a few months later, unfortunately, when he was strangled by his choke chain. Oh. Choke chain? Oh. Choke chain lead, sorry, that caught on a tree branch while he was chasing a car near his home in Surrey. Um, his collar is now on display in the National Football Museum in Manchester. Um, chaps, on that rather sad note, r- rather poignant note, um, it feels as though it's appropriate to move on to another very poignant feature that we have most days on the Vuelta a España. 
and the inspiration for which was provided in Andorra this morning. A lot of off-duty cyclists in Andorra this morning, uh, guys who live there but are not riding the Vuelta España, so Esteban Chavez, Tobias Foss, um, who incidentally was hanging out the Yumba Visma bus, not any other buses, in case um, anyone's wondering whether he was sort of talking to prospective employers. Um, anyway, Fran was also busy at work this morning at the, in Andorra, so here is Fran Reeseando. Fram Reyes Ando, Wistful Gazing with Fram Reyes. I'm very happy to tell you that today I made a bet. I bet on staying at the start line in Andorra because I thought that there was something on offer there that was much better and much interesting than going straight to Tarragona to see the mass sprint. Over this morning, I noticed that uh, Nairo Quintana was at the start in Andorra La Bella and uh, I saw him talking for 45 minutes with uh, U80 Emirates' brilliant sport manager, Josean Fernandez Machin, who is a great conversationist and a very smart guy. And it was quite remarkable to see how certain intimacy was created between them two as they spoke amongst all the bass of a general of a stage start it was also increased by the great amount of uh, active riders who had just stopped after their training to greet their teammates after the race was gone Nairo started giving interviews around and I tag along uh, our colleague Laura Messeger and GCN's Patrick Fletcher to hear a bit from Nairo and ask him a few questions. Today we were talking about upbeat, downbeat. Well, Nairo was certainly downbeat. It's not strange because I guess it's tough to swallow the fact of being there as an alien to the environment to which you have belonged for so long and at some point uh, he was cutting a sorry figure you know on a white polo shirt and branded as if he had nothing to represent no longer in that specific scenario I asked him what he, what his conversations were like with the cycling teams to which he was suggesting himself as a rider uh, he couldn't answer he couldn't answer I mean he hesitated for 5-10 seconds and they then gave a quite general sentence on keep fighting and this kind of cyclist narrative afterwards I had a very interesting conversation with Victor Hugo Peña a former rider you may remember he was the first ever Colombian yellow jersey in the Tour de France while racing for the controversial Lance Armstrong team <laughs> uh, US Postal uh, he's here as a reporter for ESPN and uh, while discussing Nairo's situation uh, we spoke about this syndrome of the broken wings that certain former athletes do suffer 
when they are when they retire from professional sports when they are away from their environment and I got the feeling that Nairo's wings today did certainly feel broken is this wistful enough? I, I guess it is well chaps Nairo's broken wings we shouldn't joke because um, Nairo well, he's cutting a forlorn figure these days and doesn't sound doesn't seem any closer to ensuring his employment his future employment in the pro peloton um, yeah but I'm, I'm, I am intrigued by that 40 minute conversation with Machin at UAE what on earth were they talking about for 40 minutes I mean any ideas have they got any spots left on their roster for the next five years because everyone signed up on like 50 year contracts aren't they at UAE and they keep signing everyone yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a baffling one. I mean, we heard all sorts of rumours and noises, well, we have done over the last 12 months, about teams being warned not to sign Nairo Quintana. Of course, this all started with his positive test, if you can call it that, for a substance that's not... Well, it is banned, but you don't incur any sanctions um, apart from disqualification in the, re- in the race where you test positive for it. Uh, we're talking about Tramadol, and this relates to the Tour de France last year. And that was when it all turned sour with Arkea. Uh, Nairo has not been able to find a World Tour contract since then. But he's still, he's still in Andorra. Um, still on the lookout, obviously. Tends to spend a couple of Chaps. a couple of periods a year there, I think, training, and then he goes back to Colombia, and that's sort of the pattern he's followed while he's been looking for this this contract. Yeah. Talking talking of South America and South America, Lionel, um, we ate magnificently in Andorra last night, as we always do in Andorra, because there's a fantastic Mexican restaurant called uh, Cantinita Adelita, I believe it's called. And they've got they've actually got two restaurants now. Had some tacos, some guacamole. Really, really fantastic. And a lot of a lot of the South Americans, Colombians who are on the Vuelta Española's journalist, they were in there, and they also go there every year. So look it up um, if ever you're in Andorra. But let's turn our thoughts, shall we, till tomorrow's stage. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. Well, chaps, um, I jumped the gun slightly there because I already told you what we ate last night in Andorra. Andorra, which, as I said, as I think I said at the start of the episode, it grows on me every time I go there, Lionel. I hate to disappoint you. You know, wonderful mountains, wonderful climbs, whether you're a bike rider or a runner, great dining options, restaurants that stay open. Um, Unlike just over the border in France, they stay open till 9, 10. and lots of shopping opportunities. Are we still sure that's the reason everybody goes there, though? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, we heard enough about that from Fran yesterday. Um, Rob, what have we got tomorrow? Well, tomorrow we leave Catalonia and head to the province of Castellón in the Valencian Autonomous Community into one of the other Spanish regions. We start the day in Morella and we will finish in Buriana. We're going to have a stage there for the first time since the Welter hosted a team time trial in 1990. 187 kilometres, one single category two climb. Plenty though of uncategorised climbing on the menu. A bit like today, it's sort of downhill for the start with ups and downs. I think control's going to be the key, isn't it, to deciding whether it's one for the sprinters who can climb, attackers or even the breakaway boys first of four days coming up in the Valencian region as well so a few transfers but maybe a few nights in the same hotel 
Not for us, I'm afraid. Um, yes, not many, not many multiple night stays on this Vuelta a España. We're moving around a lot, or we certainly will be from today. Um, Rob, we're sort of heading towards, you mentioned Juan Ayuso and, and him having grown up really on the Costa mm -hmm. Blanca. We're heading into some heartlands of Spanish cycling. Catalonia, of course, is a bit of a heartland of Spanish cycling. Um, we're going to have now the last feature of tonight's episode. It's the Encuentro del Día. And it is with a well, someone who hails from this region, Catalonia. Someone who is really carrying the torch for a new breed of Spanish cycling enthusiast um, her name is Olga Abalos she is the director the editor of Volata magazine Volata Rob give us a quick um, present Volata for us and um, what's the sort of you know the, the five word gone started as an independent magazine about 10 years or so ago lots of great photos really interesting articles sort of based roof roughly on the idea of uh, the original ruler well, we've heard about yesterday's food. Let's have some food for thought about the future of Spanish cycling fans from Olga. And this is the Encuentro del Día. El Encuentro del Día. The meeting of the day. Well, I was looking for local, well, people with some local knowledge today in Catalonia. We're in the, it seems to me we're pretty deep in Catalonia here, the real sort of Catalan heartlands. I found someone, she's an expert on Catalonia, she's an expert on cycling, uh, Olga Abalos, you are the, you're the editor, aren't you, of Volata magazine, which, if listeners have never seen a copy of Volata, it, would it be, are you uh, happy for me to call it a kind of Spanish, Catalan ruler, Spanish ruler? Yeah, it is, yeah, it's a, it's a good way to describe the magazine, uh, actually, when we started the magazine, we were inspired by magazines like Ruler, so it's fair to say it. But um, talk to us a little bit more, um, Olga, about what, what's the sort of what's the spirit of your magazine? What's the what's the dream? What's the kind of mission statement of your magazine? Wow, good question. Uh, it, it's interesting you you answer me. Are you asking me that because sometimes when you do the magazine, uh, you forget about <laughs> what you are doing because you are like you know doing many things at the same time. But the the main thing of the magazine is to so you can forget about the screens, Twitter, uh, social media, and give yourself some time to read and to get into stories, human stories, and things that maybe you, you didn't realize about the sport and its culture. So it's a it's a magazine that bets uh, for good journalism, deep interviews, and, and long reportage. Olga, we talk a lot, and we have talked a lot for a few years, about particularly what we consider to be old Europe, or maybe southern Europe, the old cycling heartlands. And in Italy, for example, it's often said that cycling is an old person sport, and it's difficult to get young people to come to races. And the sort of new breed is taking a long time to kind of emerge among the public, among the sort of cycle, cycle race going public. What's the situation in Spain? Because your magazine is a magazine that, um, well, is much more forward-looking. Although I know that you do sort of a lot of retro features you have done in the past as well. But how do you see the current kind of landscape in terms of how cycling is seen among young people in Spain? From one side, I think it's, uh, we, we have good cyclists like Ayuso, Carlos Rodriguez, Ivan Romeo, and most of the writers that 
that you know every year write at the Tour de, de l'Avenir and uh, Tour de Porvenir, sorry, and, and races like this, that they are very engaged with the people. But the thing is, the, the tricky thing is, uh, this young generation of uh, potential readers, they follow cycling through social media, through the accounts of those cyclists. So how, this is uh, always something I always think about it. How, how can I reach to those, that new audience and bring it to what we try to do in Volat? I mean, of course, we like to talk about retro things, but since in Spain and also uh, countries like Italy or France, we explained the story so many times before, so we don't need to explain them again, we know it. So we always want to look for new stories and, and talk about things that never been uh, told before, or maybe from an, another point of view. But this is like, uh, we are in, in, that some, in, a, in a turning point now, that there's a new, new readers, there's a new generation out there, but we need to find a way to engage them with the with the magazine. Olga, when you meet someone, I don't know, at a party or at a social occasion, and this happens to all of us who are journalists, and they say to you, "Well, print's dead, isn't it?" Um, what's your what's your sort of back of the beer mat argument to them? It's print. It's not dead. It's like saying rock and roll is dead. No, it isn't. So people, this is still paying to for a ticket to go to a good band. So I think. I think the key is it's quality. If you give people something that is worth to be paid, to pay for that, I think print will, it will be alive. It's the same as books. People just still love reading on paper. So, and I think that the key is to, to, to quality, to give contents that uh, people think are worth to, to be read and, and paid for. Yeah. And we said that you want to bring new people to the sport. How did you, what's your cycling origin story Olga how did you come to the sport because um, well that's a long story right? <laughs> because um, you know I, there, there were some bad moments at home my my parents uh, got divorced and things like that so I needed like uh, something to that allowed me to fresh my mind and do other things and I started to pedal and I realized that bicycle was a good way of escaping of what is go what's going on at home. And I started to train, to train, to train. And then I got myself into the Catalan Feder Cycling Federation. And then I started racing. So, and then I studied journalists. And at some point, I said to myself, OK, before I'm too old, I'd like to start my own project with cycling because this is the sport I really like. And this, uh, yeah, and 10 years ago, um, I decided to, to start Volata. Well, we're going to go and try and do some journalism now. But if anyone listening is ever in Catalonia, look up, or in Spain generally, look up Volata. Volata is one of the best things to come out of Catalonia, along with Vichy Catalan mineral water. They're my two favourite things about Catalonia. <laughs> well, Vichy Catalan, I didn't expect that. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good drink. <laughs> Well, chaps, I thought that was um, in a really interesting from perspective from Olga. Some challenges that she's facing and her magazine are facing are similar to the ones that we face as representatives of the media in other territories. The changing face of the media, different, different platforms, different media um, emerging, other ones dying, sort of withering on the vine. And some challenges that are more specific to Spain, I would say. Would you agree, Rob? Yes, Spanish cycling still, for the general public who isn't into cycling either via family members or in a club or anything like that, 
everybody still refers to Miguel Indurain. So you've been for a bike ride and you go down the pub and, you know, they ask you what you did today, bottom, and it's like, ah, I've been out for a bike ride. And, you know, it's like, instead of saying, oh, how did you get on, Contador, or how was that mass? You know, it's like, ah, oh, Indurain, Indurain, Indurain. And is, that's is this because you bear an, um, your pedal stroke bears an uncanny resemblance to his, uh, Rob, <laughs> alongside you? I've often made this mistake, you know, when I've ridden with you. Have you? Theory me, theory me. You can get your eyes set to cocker. No, it's not. It's just because Spanish cycling is sort of stuck in that era still. We've had heroes, we've had superstars, you know, the likes of Contador, and, but nobody's really captured the, the national consciousness in the same way since. And, and it's difficult to do. Obviously, they, they need tour winners, but you, could, you know, we've had tour winners since then, haven't we? There's plenty of them as well from Spain. I really don't know what to do, and I think part of it is prob- probably a problem that is linked to what you said as well. It's not just linked to Spain. It's connecting with younger audiences, the language we use. It's, it's, a, it's a deep dive, isn't it? I don't have too many fears. I don't have too many worries for Spain because I, when I come to Spain, when I spend time in Spain, Rob, I see a, a really healthy culture of participation in sport. And it's, it feels organic to me. It doesn't necessarily rely on structures and clubs, um, school sport. You know, you go out on any on any given evening. And part of this is to do with the weather. Obviously, it's a fantastic it has a fantastic climate for sport. I mean, it might get more difficult um, as the the sort of climate change accelerates. But I see an awful lot of people doing sport and doing endurance sport as well, whether it's, you know, walking, running, cycling. So I don't have too many fears. And also, the other thing that gives me hope, um, heart, is what Fran said yesterday about the mountainside sort of erupting on uh, Arinsal yesterday when Juan Ayuso attacked. And he's a, he's a charismatic figure. I think he's someone, well, he's obviously got a lot of ability, but he's someone who could inspire a new generation. Yeah, I mean, it's now nine years since a Spaniard even won the Vuelta, Alberto Contador, in 2014. That's the longest barren run in Vuelta history for the home nation. And of all of the race, I mean, we think of the Giro's history, you know, long runs of it being a very kind of domestic uh, race in the sense of a, a battle between Italian riders. But the Vuelta itself was has been like that for much of its history. I know the first two editions were won by Belgians, oddly enough. But, you know, uh, you know, if you talk to Sean Kelly, for example, about how the Spaniards would uh, combine to try and ensure a Spanish winner against the, the foreign riders, because there was a sense that the race was more popular with the home crowd. The, the media coverage was, uh, was elevated. The, the sense of uh, excitement was, was all generated by there being home stars. And certainly Spain could do with a rider with the kind of the panache of a contador. I mean, say whatever you like about him. He attacked. He was aggressive. You know, he won hearts. He won fans. And, uh, well, yeah, Ayuso, big shoes to fill there, really, in, in that sense of carrying a nation's uh, cycling hopes. But uh, early signs are that uh, Ayuso is, is in decent enough shape to be a real factor in this race. If my hopes don't lie with uh, Juan Ayuso, then they lie with Fran Reyes, because who, <laughs> if not Fran Reyes, could inspire a nation? I mean, with, the, with his output on this Vuelta España so far, I mean, if there's no other reason to tune in than uh, Fran Reyes' wistful gazing, then that is reason enough as far as I'm concerned. Chaps, that's about all we've got time for. Um, Lionel, I think you're, I think it's Brian Nygaard on the hockey tomorrow, um, and you'll be back in a couple of days. Rob, we'll be having you back as well on multiple occasions over the next few days. Um, chaps, it's been a pleasure. Good evening. Moltes gracias for the final time. Moltes mm. gracias. Enjoy dinner, Daniel. Tarragon, some kind of chicken in a tarragon sauce, maybe. <laughs>
The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib, and Lionel Burney. Que nos vamos de...